And let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation, final book in the Bible, easy to find, and uh, chapter 3. Did you find your way there to Revelation chapter 3? Be good with your other hand to uh, find Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, and uh, we'll reference that a little later in the service, and it'll be handy to already be there. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus speaking. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we are no longer in this world without God, without you. And we are so grateful in every aspect um, for who and what you are. We love your wisdom, we love your power, we love your heart, we love and are grateful for your love for us, that this relationship is based upon uh, grace, but not a sloppy grace. And you are the perfection of just what we need. And we are thankful that you're our God today. And we pray that you would fill us fresh with your spirit right now and give us the capacity, Jesus, to hear your voice through your letter to the church at Sardis and to us today. And we ask this in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And so this morning we come to Jesus' fifth of his seven letters to the seven churches in uh, the Revelation, the church in Sardis. And uh, this church is commonly uh, referred to by uh, anyone who studies the seven churches and certainly by commentators as the dead church. Uh, f uh, f if for no other reason that Jesus makes it very simple for us uh, to entitle that because he declares them to be dead. I think that significant to understanding Jesus' letter to them was the fact that the ancient uh, city of Sardis had gone from being one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world in the 6th century uh, B.C. until the time that Jesus now writes to it, it is really a shell of its former self in uh, virtually all aspects. The city itself is living off of uh, a reputation, its uh, long past reputation for greatness, and it seems as if the church in Sardis has uh, fallen prey to the same kind of mindset. It's interesting to notice in verse 1 how the, this church uh, saw itself. What is its self-assessment? And uh, they saw themselves as having a name that they were alive. And that's how they saw themselves as being alive. But we'll see as a, in just a moment that Jesus declared them to be dead. And the word that he uses for dead there is to be stone-cold dead. Uh, it uh, literally carries the idea of being a uh, corpse. It is a church there that is not in the process of dying, but it is already dead. Now, I don't know how you picture a dead church in your mind. Maybe you think of uh, the church in Sardis, as many commentators do, as a symbolism of dead Protestantism. And so... Uh, in your mind, you have this picture of an old, uh, run-down, uh, uh, clapboard church painted white on the edge of, uh, edge of town with half a dozen or so 
uh, white-haired saints uh, attending, and they're living off of the memories of what God once did uh, in the church. Or we might be tempted to think of some liberal mainline denominational church that's uh, struggling to keep its doors open. And personally, I never view the church of Sardis as either one of those things. And one reason is, is that it puts too much distance between uh, us and it in our minds. At least it has the potential to do that. And second, it can't be the circumstances that Jesus is dealing with here because it doesn't fit the description. Uh, those kind of churches don't have a reputation for life. They know they're dead, and everybody else knows they're dead. They're not living under any illusion that they are uh, experiencing or exuding any kind of spiritual uh, life at all. Notice too in verse 1 that Jesus describes Sardis as a working church, as a church that was bustling with uh, activity. When he says, I know your works, the word works there is ergon. It means to labor. It means to toil. It means to work hard. We get our English word energy uh, from that uh, Greek word. And it was, so it was an energetic church. It was uh, a church where energy was going in all directions and uh, being expended everywhere. And so given this description in my mind, on any given day of the week, the church of Sardis was a picture of activity. Uh, to attend there on any given Sunday would have been to receive an education, if in nothing else, in activity. The signs were put out. The cones were uh, put out. Uh, the parking lot was full. Bulletins, greeters, nursery ministers, ushers, uh, youth ministry, and uh, all kinds of different things going on in the church. The worship team, the Bible being taught. And the worship services in the church of Sardis were doubtless, doubtless very high energy. And so outwardly, they are the picture of spiritual health. And if you had asked anyone that attended the church whether their church was alive, they would have thought that you came from another planet. I mean, they, they'd have been defensive related to the very suggestion that they might be anything other than uh, alive. Of course we're alive. Look at all of the things that we're doing here. And it didn't just have a reputation for being alive among those that attended the church. It had a reputation for being alive within the community. And, uh, and if you were to ask anyone within the community, they'd all say, oh, the church of Sardis, that's alive. You just ask anyone, the neighbors, the neighborhood, the whole city itself, that church is, a, 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 that church is alive. And they would confirm the human assessment the church of Sardis, yes, something uh, that is a living church, something very alive is happening over there. And so it's a marvel then when Jesus assesses that very same church with that very same assessment of itself and the community holding the same assessment for it, when he declares it in verse 1, but you are dead. Now this is known as clarity in teaching to teach so not only so as to be understood but so as to not be misunderstood there's no mistaking that statement that jesus uh, makes to them now this huge gulf that exists between their self-assessment of their church and jesus's assessment of that very same church tells me that apparently Dead churches are not as easy to identify as we might assume. Again, no one would have ever guessed that this church was dead, and yet in the eyes of God it was. And it was dead, but frighteningly, whether this is true in a church or in an individual, it still had a tremendous capacity uh, to give the appearance of life. Now notice in verse 1 as well that Jesus reveals the cause of their dead condition. 
And the cause is revealed in how he comes to this church, how he describes himself to this church. We remember that in coming to each of these seven churches, he describes himself in some way that they, uh, those churches need, either needed to be desperately reminded of because of the difficulty of their circumstances, or it was something that they had lost sight of concerning him and desperately needed to be reminded of in terms of, uh, of correction. And so how he uh, described himself here uh, uh, is a revelation of what uh, Sardis here had lost in terms of understanding Jesus, his character, and, and his sovereign will and needed to be reminded of. He comes to Sardis, you notice, as the one who has the seven spirits of God. Uh, and the seven stars. Now, the Amplified Bible, I think, captures it perfectly when it translates that passage. These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, that is the sevenfold Holy Spirit and the seven stars. Now, this isn't the first reference to seven spirits in the book of Revelation. You might remember when we looked at Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, that the Holy Spirit is referred to as from the seven spirits. And the phrase there, the seven spirits, is a clear reference to the Holy Spirit. Because there in verses 4 through 6, there is a reference to the Father. There is a reference then to the Holy Spirit as being the seven spirits. And then a reference to Jesus Christ. The entire triunity of God is referred to in the passage, and this is a clear description of the Holy Spirit. And here we remember that as we are in the book of Revelation, uh, the key to understanding the book of Revelation is to understand the Old Testament and the Old Testament imagery that God uses here. Again, of the 404 verses that constitute the book of Revelation, fully 278 of those verses are clear references to Old Testament passages and uh, imagery. And so the question then becomes, where in the Old Testament is there a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit? And there is one. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, which is written in the context of the anointing of the Holy Spirit that would be upon Messiah, upon Jesus, when He came into the world. Notice Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, there, shall come forth, uh, uh, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of His roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so the church at Sardis was very simply a church that had lost sight of the importance of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life and also in Christian ministry. They were dead for the simple reason that they were no longer a church under the control of the Holy Spirit. They had ceased to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And so the activity, the busyness, the expenditure of all of high energy is not always a sign of health in a church. It can be, but it isn't always. You witness in, in terms of uh, our life the proverbial uh, chicken with its head uh, cut off. You cut the head off of a chicken and it's a study in activity. Uh, it's a study in ergon. And, uh, uh, but in that case, it merely reveals not something healthy, but it reveals that the body has been separated from the head. And I don't doubt that the leaders of the, this church, which has been cut off from its head, that is Jesus, the head of the church, that, and, and unknowingly left a dependence upon the Holy Spirit, 
will typically, a pastor or a leader, will uh, manifest a separation from the head in exactly that way. Uh, determined to raise the level of, of activity. We sense something is wrong. We sense something is missing in, uh, in the church. And so our first reaction is to generate more activity. And so uh, we frantically develop more and more ministries. We take to shouting our messages in order to give them a life that we know that they don't have by the Holy Spirit. And we determine to make our uh, worship uh, higher and higher uh, energy. But those things can only mask uh, the, uh, the problem for a time. And uh, none of those things can actually solve the problem. And if the problem isn't properly identified and addressed, then all that remains is for the ultimate wilting and dying uh, of the church. Where one or two people within the congregation at a time begins to dawn on them that something is wrong, We've got a ton of activity here in the church, but there's no sense of the Holy Spirit uh, at work in it. There's no witness to the Holy Spirit, to all that we're doing and all that we're saying. Now, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 is an amazing uh, ministry passage because it provides us with this sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. And it describes for us seven things that He alone can supply to a Christian life, that He alone can supply to a Christian church and to its leadership. And again, in the context of chapter 11, verse 2, this is the anointing of the Holy Spirit that would be upon Jesus as the coming Messiah. And you can't have a more fruitful life than Jesus' life. You can't have a more uh, uh, fruitful ministry, an anointed ministry, uh, than Jesus' ministry. And one of the things that I find fascinating about this passage is that it really enlarges our understanding as Christians of the person and work of the Holy Spirit in a a local church or in an individual Christian's life. And so often I think that when we think about a dead church or we think about um, a neglect of the Holy Spirit within, a, uh, within a, a, a church, we think of it most often solely in terms of Pentecostal uh, ideas or charismatic uh, ideas only. In other words, well, what we need is more manifestations of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and, and as wonderful as those things might be in their own place, uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in a local church and in an individual Christian life goes way, way beyond that. And this passage reminds us of that. You notice first that the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of God. And this speaks uh, of the recognition that the Holy Spirit uh, as God is deserving of the same respect. He's deserving of the same uh, reverence that we give to God the Father and that we give to Jesus. That He's not to be ignored. He is uh, not at all to be disregarded in the Christian life. He is the third person uh, of the Godhead. And to forsake a dependence upon the Holy Spirit is to forsake a dependence upon God because He is the third person uh, of the God, uh, Godhead. And to forsake a dependence upon the Holy Spirit is to somehow believe that I can fulfill God's call upon my life, build a healthy church uh, 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 apart from God, uh, apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, we would never believe this theologically. Uh, we would always theologically talk about the importance of the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, as we'll see in a moment, uh, these people did not lack in terms of their theological understanding. Uh, of the Holy Spirit. 
And so it's possible to believe everything correctly concerning the Holy Spirit, but not live like it practically. And if Jesus could not fulfill His public ministry apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then how in the world can a church ever uh, accomplish what God has called it to do uh, as well? And again, uh, Sardis was a church that ceased to emphasize the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, ceased to depend upon Him. And the problem with that is that we can no more ignore the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and have a successful, dynamic, living, actually living church than we can ignore God the Father and have that kind of a church or God the Son, the person of Jesus, and have uh, that kind of uh, a church. And one of the problems both then and today is that it's possible to grow an active, energetic church based upon natural talent, to based upon cleverness, to based upon, based upon human ability as opposed to a dependence upon the work of the Holy Spirit in that church. It's very easy, especially today, to just simply hire the most talented people and then brainstorm and plan and then stage all of it, lights, camera, uh, and action. But it will always lack the witness of the Holy Spirit to it. And without the witness of the Holy Spirit to God's truth, if He does not inhabit our praises, if He does not participate in the service, then uh, we have no uh, life in the service. I'll never forget being in um, a pastor's conference now uh, decades ago, and it was a conference in Indiana, and uh, there was a workshop, and a pastor by the name of George Markey was given that workshop, and he was a missionary in the Ukraine. And, um, uh, and uh, 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 it had uh, begun elsewhere and moved and then was probably the most instrumental person being used certainly in Calvary Chapel in, in the Ukraine. And I remember him talking about the fact that uh, here he was in a city of a, a million people in the Ukraine and, and it he, he was pastoring the sole uh, kind of Bible teaching church in, in the city because of other religious systems and the different things that were going on there. And he exhorted us that he said there's something like, he said like there's like nine other cities in the Ukraine that are over a million people and not one uh, Bible-believing church that is teaching the Bible in it. And that I would urge anyone that's looking and spending all of uh, your time deconstructing Christianity, go start a church in one of these cities. Secure for all of it. Go get busy about the things uh, of the Lord. Go out into the midst of the need. But one of the things, things didn't always go easily for George uh, Markey. Ne they never did, but uh, as he uh, got there, and I think even as he began in Russia uh, before that, but because there, was, there were so many problems that were uh, going on in the Ukraine, also in Russia, you had PhDs that were out of work operating as security guards. Uh, you had a symphony quality uh, instrumentalists and, and, and vocalists uh, who were uh, 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 finding any kind of work that they could. Educated, education highly prized in, in Russia. And, and so it was very easy to start a church and all of these people that were coming and having such talent, you could put a quality up in front of them uh, and, and in terms of talent and ability uh, uh, Sunday in and Sunday out. And so he did. And, uh, and, he, and he looked at it uh, over a long period of time, and he said, this thing is absolutely dead. It's dead. For all this talent, for all this gleaning of the, the very best and the, mo and the brightest and the most talented, 
and, and putting these people in the place of, of prominence, though Christians, is a mistake. And what he then did is he turned to that congregation and he determined to find who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Who knows God personally? Who depends upon the Holy Spirit and has that kind of humility and anointing upon their life as a result? And he began to put those people into, the posi- into those positions and everything changed because nothing we can do can replace or take the place of the Holy Spirit within our midst. And it was a good exhortation that He gave us, and I've held to it to this day. The witness of the Holy Spirit uh, in our assemblies is uh, absolutely uh, everything. You notice second, the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of wisdom. And this, uh, this word wisdom speaks of the capacity to make right judgments, good decisions. And so one indicator that a church has ceased to be dependent upon uh, the Holy Spirit as it should is when a lot of bad decisions start to be made, one after the other. Decisions that are clearly uh, devoid of wisdom. It seems like there are more bad decisions being made than good decisions. Now, no church is not going to make a bad decision uh, here and there, but when it becomes a consistent mark of a church, people will begin to question uh, whether leadership is prayerful, uh, whether they're listening to God in the decisions that they're making, or whether they even know how to listen to God, and it really damages people's confidence in their leadership. And a church can only withstand so much uh, of that. And so, too, this same characteristic in a, a Christian life can be caused by a failure to depend upon the Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom that we need in our decision-making. Third, the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of understanding. And this word understanding, it speaks of discernment, the ability to distinguish, to see the heart of an issue. Where the outward looking at something, it looks uh, 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 like one thing uh, to us, but God knows that what's really happening here is something entirely different. And, uh, and uh, like when the Apostle Paul was in Philippi, and there's this girl that is demon-possessed, and she is calling on people and telling them that this man has the words of uh, the God Most High. And, and so she's got a demon-possessed girl uh, being an evangelist for what Paul is doing. He didn't want the help. But outwardly, it all looked great. But here he looked at it and saw below the surface in the words, this girl is demon-possessed, and then proceeded to cast uh, the, the demon out of her. And how often a church and, and its leaders, we face situations where people uh, are, can be intentionally or unintentionally, uh, 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 they give us one side of a story or selectively feed the facts to us in an attempt to get us to uh, act in a, a certain way, a decision that they want us uh, to make. It all looks right on the outside, but God knows what is really uh, happening here isn't how it's being presented, and He won't give us a piece to proceed. He gives us a spirit of understanding. And I know you have the same experience in your own life where you look at it and you go, I know it looks like this, but something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. Something is wrong here. Because the Holy Spirit will not give me a peace uh, about this situation. And it's the Holy Spirit taking a person and a leader in a church or an individual Christian and saying, I know it looks like one thing, but I'm telling you, it's not what it looks like. And then giving us an understanding of what it actually is. And because Sardis had ceased to depend upon the Holy Spirit, they were cut off from this discernment in their uh, leadership and in the church. 
And then fourth, the Holy Spirit's described as the spirit of counsel. And here counsel speaks of the ability to devise a right course of action, to plan, uh, to form a strategy or a plan for the future. And who but God knows the future uh, 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 about in anything. And, and with the world, of course, becoming more and more fragile by the day, more and more volatile by the day, seemingly more and more uncertain uh, by the day, who would want to devise a plan related to the future of a church for a week, let alone a month or for years, apart from the involvement of the Holy Spirit. Fifth, you notice that the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of might. In other words, He provides us with the might and with the power to do what it is that He calls us to do. And the neglect of the Holy Spirit, you will get a lot of activity, but you will get a lot of turnover because people are doing this in the, uh, the strength of their own strength, and there'll be the inevitable uh, burnout. It becomes a very, very high maintenance institution uh, and, and uh, church. And then six, the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of, of knowledge of God. And that is the Holy Spirit gives us a supernatural ability to know God, a supernatural ability to understand uh, God. And, and this isn't talking about the Holy Spirit giving us knowledge of God uh, supremely theologically, but it is the, uh, the Holy Spirit helps us to come to know God personally and experientially. He works within a congregation so that when we hear theology, when we hear teaching about God, He then takes it and moves it, that most important 18 inches in all of the world, from our head to our heart, and He tells us, now, this is what that has to do with my relationship with you. And without that work of the Holy Spirit, we will get, uh, attain to uh, a, a mass of intellectual understanding of God, but it will never work its way down into our relationship with Him. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in a church, in, in a, a, a Christian's life. And because Christianity is all about a personal relationship with God, if He doesn't do that, if he doesn't take this and say, this is, uh, this is how this means, what this means, this truth about me, to your circumstance and to your situation and your decision uh, that, that you're making, uh, uh, then, uh, then the, the church uh, it then becomes something where it is no longer doing the supreme thing that a church is to do, and that is to nurture a personal relationship uh, with, with God. And so uh, the uh, uh, dead here, moving away from the Holy Spirit uh, in terms of people then developing a deeper and deeper uh, personal relationship with God, it's a catastrophic uh, loss. And then seven, he describes, the Holy Spirit is described as uh, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. In other words, the Holy Spirit produces within us, and He nurtures within us this deep, deep respect and reverence for God uh, within us, which is not only a key to personal holiness within our lives, but it is a key to the awe and the respect and the reverence that we uh, feel toward Him that makes our worship and song the dynamic, real, living thing uh, that it is. We know Him. We love Him. We respect Him. And all of these, thing, these words that the, holy, that the, the worship team uh, puts before us to then sing to God, we have a longing then to sing them uh, to God. And without uh, this fear of God uh, as an, uh, a work of the Holy Spirit, 
a church, I think, will become, I think, nothing at all of becoming, uh, just effortlessly moving from being a place that is God-centered to now becoming a place that is man-centered and to become proud and unholy and self-sufficient. Now, looking at that in, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, you ask yourself, what church in its right mind, ourselves included, could ever cut ourselves off from all of that and still survive? Who could survive? And, and that is precisely Jesus' point. We can give the appearance of life, but without those things being represented within a church, that church really is dead. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave them or us there. He moves on to the solution in verses 2 and 3. In other words, there's hope in a situation like this. And, uh, and I think the only thing, and the, and the reason I love the fact that Jesus moves to the solution, one of the reasons that I, I, I love it is that the only thing that's harder to endure uh, than uh, attending a dead church is when someone recognizes it to be dead and then determines to correct that problem in the flesh by adding more carnal activities and more carnal uh, emotional excitement to the service. And so Jesus gives us the real solution here. He tells the church, be watchful, wake up, you've fallen asleep. And they needed to to wake up to the fact that this was their condition and to face up to it. It doesn't stop there. He said, then strengthen the things that remain. In other words, don't let this uh, spread any further than it it has. Reverse course concerning uh, what hasn't died yet. And then in verse 3, those two words, Uh, and they're worth circling in your Bible, the word remember and the word how. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. And Jesus is calling on this church to remember the time in their history when things were different. There was a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. When he uses the word remember, Uh, That's an indication that they once had this. They're not uninstructed. They're not uh, 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 uninformed. This isn't something that they didn't know what it felt like and uh, and to experience it. Uh, He says, remember, because uh, they they had. They hadn't always been in the place they were in now. And what were they to remember? What they were to remember very significantly here is how they had received and heard. You notice he does not say to them, remember what you have received. He doesn't say what. He says how. Their problem is not doctrinal, like Thyatira and Pergamos. They are not in a dead condition because they had forgotten what they had received and heard, but because they had forgotten how they had received and heard. And how had they once received and heard? Once, no doubt, with an absolute dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And once leading the church without all of the answers, being very acutely aware of how inadequate that they uh, could be as a congregation or as as an individual to represent God Almighty uh, on the the face of this earth, uh, independent of of the Holy Spirit, and uh, and coming to the place where uh, you cry out as, you, as they began, help me, Lord, apart from you, I can't do uh, anything. I think about Solomon's uh, dependence and the beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament. He becomes king following uh, David, 
And uh, God comes to him and says, you know, what do you want? And, and gives him an offer to ask for whatever blessing. And uh, Solomon doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask for power. He doesn't ask for fame. He asks for wisdom. God, would you give me wisdom uh, to sit on this throne so that good decisions can come forth from it? And he recognized what sometimes I think politicians don't recognize today. Winning the election is nothing. Now you've got to rule. And do you have the wisdom to rule? And Solomon in his youth understood even that. And he said to God, I don't even have the knowledge and the wisdom for how to walk into the throne room and sit on the throne and get up from the throne and walk out of the room, much less the wisdom to make decisions on that throne. And that dependence blessed God. And God said, I'll give you what you asked for, and I'll give you everything else on top of it, because I can do so knowing that you're safe to receive it, having that kind of wisdom and dependence. And over time, it's so easy for human cleverness and ministry experience and our own wisdom and our own programs and our own methods to crowd all of that out. To say, uh, the crowding out the early days, the days that should never leave our lives. God, I cannot accomplish what you've called me to do and be as a Christian or for us as a church apart from your Holy Spirit and what He brings to us and to our uh, lives. And Jesus was calling Sardis back to the same kind of dependence upon the Holy Spirit that marked the early days uh, of the church. And churches are only truly alive to the degree that they and we are empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. Now, he, his warning to the church if his counsel was ignored is given to us there in verse 3. Therefore, if you do not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. That is, he said he, he would come personally and chasten them suddenly if they continued in that dead condition uh, in, in the face of this warning. And then he commended a remnant within the church there in verse 4. And of course, any church that neglects the person and the work of the Holy Spirit uh, within it is soon going to find itself mired in carnality, mired in, in sin, which apparently had happened within the church as well. But there was a remnant within the church that had remained faithful to God, to His Word. Jesus took uh, note of it, and He promised to give them an intimacy of relationship with that remnant that others would not uh, w would not experience. Uh, John, uh, uh, John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus answered and He said, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with uh, him. And so Jesus here promises them that remnant that I, it, it, because it, you have stood with me in the midst of all of the complications of this local church, he said, I will uh, draw you deeper and deeper into a personal relationship with me. Jesus then gives promises to overcomers, uh, Christians, the church itself that looks and says, he's right. This is who we are and what we are, whether it's a church or individual, and, and they say, all right, we're going to turn from this and, and repent of this and turn back to a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. He says, the overcomers that we shall be clothed in white garments, symbolic of the righteousness of, uh, of God. Uh, he says further that our names will not be blotted out of the book of life. It's a very, very strong way of communicating the absolute assurance 
of, of our salvation and, and that we'll one day stand in, in the glory of heaven as Christians. And then Jesus declared that he will confess our name before his Father and before his angels. And uh, he will confess us as his uh, in uh, belonging to him in heaven. Whoever Jesus said, whoever co confesses me before men, I will also confess him uh, before my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus closes as usual with an exhortation to have uh, an ear to hear what it is that he uh, is saying to this church. No church is alive, no matter what it thinks of itself, no matter what other people think of it, if it is not being directed by the Holy Spirit, and if it is not dependent upon the Holy Spirit for those seven things that are listed in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And so we embrace that uh, warning uh, individually and as a church. And there's always a danger, as I've mentioned, that clever, naturally talented, ambitious people can take the control uh, uh, of the Holy Spirit uh, 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 in a church away from Him, and never more so than today when there is so much pressure upon uh, churches to be lights, camera, and action uh, in order to uh, uh, appeal in some way. Famously, uh, A.W. Tozer wrote, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% uh, of what we uh, do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know uh, the difference. And believe it or not, that quote is a comfort uh, to me because I don't think we as a church, uh, beginning with me, uh, have even uh, the smallest semblance of talent or ability or cleverness or strength or inclination to give the appearance of a spiritual life that does not exist in reality uh, in our own lives and in our midst. I'm convinced, and, and sometimes people get a little troubled by the leanness of our org chart around here. On everything, all, whatever, and, and, uh, and the reason that the org chart is pretty lean uh, is because we want, uh, we want everything to be as dependent upon the person of the Holy Spirit in, in this church as it possibly uh, can be, and to not over-organize it away uh, uh, from that. And I think that without uh, the grace and the leading and the empowering and the witness of the Holy Spirit, I personally don't think this church would last two uh, weeks. Uh, we don't have the capacity to bluff and, and certainly have no energy or strength, certainly not at this point, to try and give the illusion of a life that doesn't exist. And that's exactly where we want to be. As Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. And then Jesus spoke to Paul as he records in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul then said, Therefore most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so hallelujah, may it ever be so. And it's good for us as a church. And don't look at this and push this away and say this letter has nothing to speak to us. But this is something that for us, I know for us as leaders, is a constant focus. It certainly is for me as well. 
this dependence upon the Holy Spirit, hearing His voice. What does He want to do? What are we supposed to do here, Lord? And recognizing, as we do as pastors in the church, that the greatest threat to the headship of Jesus Christ in this church is us, the pastors. And if we move away from a dependence upon the Holy Spirit and then try to take that all over, then a death will uh, occur. But we recognize it and have no interest in competing with Jesus Christ to be the head uh, of this church. And so it is good, though, for us to look at it and in our own individual lives to look and say how much of what uh, God offers us in the person of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, uh, characterizes my own Christian life. And then sometimes it can be an eye-opener to realize the Holy Spirit is willing to do all of that in my life. I had no idea. And then we're often running into a quality of Christian life that we perhaps have never known before. And so there is hope in, in this situation in a church like that, but it's found in remembering how we once depended upon Him and then returning to that. You don't have to... Uh, it, it's not complex like the internal combustion engine uh, or the Pythagorean theorem. It's just remember and return to it. And then, obviously, Jesus doesn't call them to do that, except that we will find that relationship with God that we once had exactly where we left it. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we embrace this letter of Your Son this morning. And we recognize in our own lives a tremendous capacity to constantly want to, knowingly or unknowingly, take over control of what has to belong solely to you, whether it's our own individual life or whether it's a church. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus, for your warnings here and how clear you are in this letter, but then the wonderful, amazing grace and hope that you infuse in this as well. To whatever degree we as a church have moved from a complete dependence upon you and your Holy Spirit, we trust you to reveal that to us and to reveal that to us individually, Lord, as members of this congregation as well. And we ask for this work of your Spirit in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.